the very first real job I had while in high school was a dishwasher at Golden Bear Family Restaurant. Have you ever worked in a restaurant before? If you've ever worked in a restaurant, tell the person next to you the name of the restaurant you worked in and what you did. Go ahead, take a second to do that. Well, if you've ever worked in a popular restaurant at the peak times, you know that the back room can be a horrific mess, especially if it's one of those sit-down restaurants where the patrons can't really see the back room. Well, like I mentioned, I worked at Golden Bear, which was kind of like a Denny's or a Perkins, and we were in a very high traffic, very popular area. So on our peak times, our back room was just horrific. I mean, the garbage, who had time to take garbage out, right? Garbage everywhere. The delivery came in with the eggs, but who had time to put them in the cooler, right? So we just left those out. Uh, we would have a pound of meat um, sitting on the meat slicer. We would have dirty knives. The, the prep table was filthy. We had a bunch of meat that someone was supposed to thaw out the night before in a sink of hot water. Just garbage everywhere. The poor dishwasher was, was inundated with garbage and dishes during the peak time, and, and it, he couldn't keep up with it. And when things were, were just at their busiest, most messiest time, it seemed that it was that the time where one of the wait staff would stick their head in the back room and give the two most hated, most horrific words that anybody had ever heard in rest, the restaurant industry, and that was this. They would say, health inspector. And we're like, no, not the health inspector. Oh, suddenly, everything changed. I mean, we didn't care if the people were seated, if they were fed. Everybody's back there. The cook's back there, the bus boys, dishwasher. We had some of the wait staff, and we were yanking garbage out the back room as fast as you can imagine and cleaning up the knives and washing everything down with bleach. There were multiple people trying to help the dishwasher put things back in a legal sort of way. Major, major work. We, this was choreographed. We were trained for this sort of thing. But I want to let you know that it wasn't the presence of the health inspector that made the difference. No, I mean, if the health inspector would have came in incognito, in disguise, we would have just kept on going the way we were going uh, until he closed us down. But it was our consciousness of the health inspector's presence. Let's, let's say this. Let's say you are with your family north side of Chicago. You've got a family gathering. You leave kind of late. As you're driving through Milwaukee, you notice that your car is about ready to run out of gas. And so you get off at the very next exit. You have no clue where you're at. But as you get off, you're looking for a gas station, and this looks like a very rough neighborhood. You keep driving deeper and deeper into it, though. It's about 1 in the morning at this point. The, the car stops. It runs out of gas, and that's when you realize you left your phone with your family north side of Chicago, and you're by yourself. And you see a light about three blocks down. Maybe you need to walk to it. You don't know what else to do. So you get out of your car and you start walking. You get about a block and a half down, deserted type streets, except for that, that group of mm, 10 to 15 late teenage guys across the street. And you are not profiling. You're not profiling. No, no, no. But 
from what they're wearing and from the language that's coming out of their mouth and from the way they're acting, you're going to assume they're not the Salvation Army band. And so you're not sure what to do. And then they notice you and they stop and they all kind of turn towards you and start whispering among themselves. And at this point, you probably are freaking out, panicking. It's all over. And, and, but they, 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 don't, they don't move. And that's when you, you notice behind you, you turn, and right behind you, there are these four huge guys. I mean, these guys are like a combo between Goliath and, and early Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and Dwayne Johnson. And they are just massive guys, right? And they've got this Steven Seagal ponytail thing going on. And they're wearing dark sunglasses. It's like one in the morning, but they're wearing dark sunglasses. And they got a hitman sort of smirk on their face. And they've all got trench coats on. And they've got their hand in their trench coats like they're hanging on to their automatic weapons. And then you realize these guys are your brothers, they're your brothers. They love you more than anything. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, no wonder the guys across the street haven't come at me. And you suddenly, how are you feeling now, right? A little more confident. You might look at the guys across the street and say, hey boys, shouldn't you be your mommy right about now? You get all kinds of confidence. Now the issue is not, it's not whether your brothers were behind you. It wasn't their presence they were there all the time. The difference was your consciousness of their presence. You see where this is going. Because we're in a series called God Is. Where we're looking at some of the attributes of God. And the attribute that we're going to look at this morning is the most personable. The greatest gift. It, it is it is. Why the tabernacle and the temple and the Ark of the Covenant and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and heaven, it's what they are all about. It is the presence of God. And so this is what we're going to do. Okay, we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the right doctrine, the, the doctrinal statement, the orthodoxy. And then we're going to look at the so what, the orthopraxy, how you live this out. And so as we, we think about the, the doctrine, it's, it's Psalm 1, a lot of places we could go, but Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. And the psalmist writes, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, or the grave, sometimes in, uh, translated hell, you're there. So highest place you can go, God's there. Lowest place you can go, God's there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Uh, it's looking at this from a different angle. We see this in 1 Kings, right? 1 Kings 8.27. And this is what he says. Solomon's dedicating the temple and he's got this temple he built and he says but will God indeed dwell on the earth will God actually fit in my temple he says behold heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you how much less this house than I've built now look at this closely because here's what he's saying he's saying there is not a millimeter anywhere in this universe, the multiverse, in any dimension where God's presence is not there fully. 
It's not like God is kind of here and he's not over there, but he's a whole lot over there. God is not divvied out like that in quality or quantity. God is, right? So God is everywhere. God is in the boardrooms of New York and in the jungles of New Guinea. God is in the halls of St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican and in the back room of the brothels of Sweden. God is on death row. God is on skid row. God is everywhere. And this makes lots of sense if you think about it. Because if ever there was a place where God was not, then God would not know what's going on there. He would not be omniscient. If ever there was a place where God was not, well then God would not have authority over that place. He would not be omnipotent. If ever there was a place God was not, he would have no control over it. He wouldn't be sovereign. If God was not everywhere, then God would not be. God is not everything. That's pantheism, right? But God is everywhere. But wait, there's more. God is not just everywhere, right? God is always with you. God's not just a big force. He's not just a big mist. God is a personable God. God is with you. Now, think about this for a second. God was with you fully the moment you were conceived. You you couldn't couldn't be conscious of his, you couldn't be anything, right? But God was with you 100% then. God was with you at your birth, God was with you when you were four years old, uh, 261 days, 11 minutes, and he could tell you exactly what you were thinking and feeling at that point because God was with you. God was with you on your 16th birthday. God was with you at that first weekend when you went to college, when you kind of wished he wouldn't be. No, no, God was there. God was with you through that very, very dark time. When you felt very, very alone, God was at your funeral already. God's been there. And you need to know a couple of things about God. You can leave him, at least consciously, but he'll never leave you. You can forget God, but he will never forget you. Check out this verse, Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Now, just, just look at that verse for a second. What an amazing, amazing thing. I don't know if there is a stronger force in this world, earthly world, than the power of a mom's love for her kids. Mama bears do not forget their cubs, right? I've got stories of my mom. We won't go there. But mama bears do not forget their cubs. They will give everything. They will fight every battle. They will die multiple deaths if they can for their kids. But God compares his love for us with a mother's love for her kids. And he says, comparatively speaking, a mom may forget, but I never, never will. Robert Munch wrote a phenomenal children's book. Uh, we read to all of our kids over and over again. If you've got little kids, you should have this. I'm sure you probably do. It's called I'll Love You Forever. And, and it, it, this, the, the children's book kind of chronicles this mom. She has a little baby boy. When she takes him home from the hospital, she rocks him and she sings to him. And she says, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And then as the book goes, the kid grows up and he's a toddler and the mom will hold the toddler and she'll sing to him, I'll love you forever. 
I'll like you for always as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And the kid grows up to a little bit older child and she'll sneak in his room when he's sleeping and she'll sing to him, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And the kid grows up and ultimately he, he becomes a man and he moves across town. But the mom, she, she straps on a ladder onto her car and she drives over there most nights. And she puts the ladder up to his house and goes into his window, into his bedroom while he's sleeping. And she crawls over to his bed and she looks at him and, and kind of cradles him and sings, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And then the end, the mom dies. The mom dies. God would say to us, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, which is like forever. God never dies. My child, you'll be. God will be with us uh, God is with us in a major, major way. Now, you'd think, you'd think, you'd think that this is like a major uh, doctrine. This is like an important thing. Every Christian would be excited about this. But not so much. Not so much. Uh, because they, they have a, a skewed idea of God's presence, God's presence with them. They're thinking that God is with them to observe, right? God has given us this big old honking rule book and God is, is walking around behind me, observing me and he's taking notes and every time I mess up, he's writing this down and I'm just gonna get in all kinds of trouble one day. They've got it figured out. God is with me to observe. They're not excited about God's presence. Or maybe God is observing them from a distance, right? He's in heaven, he's, he's watching them. And he's saying, oh, no, 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 please don't, don't, don't do that. Oh, boy, ouch, I bet that hurt. Or he's saying, oh, oh, no, 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 oh, I'm so sorry. But God, God is not watching us. It's really critical that we understand this. God is watching over us. God is not with us to observe. God is with us to preserve. God is with us to direct and protect. He's with us to guide and provide. He's not just watching us. He's watching over us. This is really the critical stuff. Look at, back to our verses in Psalm 139. Look at, look at uh, verses 9 and 10. He talked already, he said, where can I flee from your presence? He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The right hand, the power of God. He's saying that even there, wherever in this world, this is critical stuff. Wherever I go in this world, you are there with me to direct me and to protect me. You are there with me, wherever, whether I'm thinking about it or not. Wherever I am, you are there to direct me and protect me. Listen, in, in Acts 17, Paul is talking to some people who are not Christians. They don't believe in God, right? They, they don't believe in, in him. And this is what he says to these guys. He says, yet he, it's, it's, he's talking about God, is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Do you see what he's saying? He, he, he's saying, you people who don't know God, you need to know this. 
that it's only in God that you have your being, your sustenance. You are sustained. You are living because God is right here with you. So non-believers, he's with them. But believers, he's with them in even a more special way. Check this out. John chapter 10. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you are in God's hand, you're not very far from God. You're in his hand. It's a sign that he's holding you, that he's with you, not to just observe you, not to watch you, but to watch over you, to guide you, to protect you, to lead you. Um, There's a case study I want us to take a second and look at. He's with me, but what does that really mean for my life? Uh, And this is a game changer because a lot of Christians, again, I'm convinced a lot of Christians have the right doctrinal statement. If you asked, I mean, any Christian, is God with you? I think they would all answer yes, but they live like practical atheists. They live like orphans. They live as if God, if he is, he is far, far away. He's, he's watching them, not watching over them. He's just observing them. They don't understand that God is with them to, to direct and protect. So if you look over in Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 13. It says... Now, let me give you some background for the verse so it makes a little more sense to you. These people have been in Egypt 430 years, which is a long time. You think about it, our country is only under 250 years old. These guys had been in Egypt for 430 years. They had just seen all of God's miraculous power in getting them out, uh, 10 plagues, right? They just get out. And so God opens the front door of Egypt and the people go. But look what it says. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, though that was near. For God said, now check this out. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. I remember I first came to know Christ and uh, I had, must have heard the gospel a, a million times. I grew up in the church. But that night, everything fell into place. And I, I understood that I was in chains to hell itself, that, that Satan was my master, that, that one day because of my sin and my disobedience, because of my fallen nature, I would spend eternity with him. But Jesus died in my place to break those bonds, to free me. And I thought that, that all he was saying is, Mark, you're now free. Go. go. I'll see you in heaven one day. Try not to get into much trouble. You know, if you get into anything, give me a call. We'll see what we can do. But just go. You're free. And if you look at this, you'd think that, that God just got his people out of Egypt and he's saying, go. You guys, promised land is that way. Just go. Stay out of trouble and I'll see you one day in heaven. But that's not the deal. God stays with his people and he's with his people to lead them. Now let's look at how he leads them. This is fascinating, right? My, my high class pointer here, right? Israel is hanging out over here in Goshen. 
But promised land is way up there, upper right-hand corner. The closest route, the quickest route, the most efficient route is right across the north. I mean, it is the most family-friendly. It is the most safe. It is, it is the most convenient. It's the most beautiful, the breeze coming off the Mediterranean. It's just a beautiful route, and that's certainly the way God should have led them. They're thinking, perhaps, but instead, God leads them down south into the desert, for crying out loud. Now, can you imagine the Israelites? They, they, they're in Egypt when Moses said, hey, come on, it's time for us to go to the promised land. And they're all thinking, the one thing they probably remember from God's encounter with their father Abraham many, many years earlier was the promise for the land, the promised land. And so they're excited. And so they're coming out of Egypt. And as they get to the intersection, there's a sign that says, promised land this way, desert that way. And so they're excited, but they watch God kind of go towards the desert. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. hey, God, wait, 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 God, 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 God. God um, promised land is, is this way, right? I mean, we, can, we, can't, we can't go in the desert, God, because uh, we got like little kids and stuff. We got, we got handicapped folk. We've got elderly people. They're not going to fare well in the desert. So I think this is the way we're supposed to go. But God, according to the text, knew something that they didn't know. Duh, he's God, right? He knew that this quickest, most efficient uh, most family-friendly way would actually destroy them and destroy their family. He knew that there were landmines along the way that if they were to go up there, they, they, would, they would be destroyed spiritually, certainly, perhaps physically as well. Now, one day, this, I mean, this is, this is Gaza Strip stuff. And so one day God is going to send King David and, and Israel when they're ready to go in there and conquer it. But today they're not ready. Now Israel thinks they're ready. But God, a good father, knows that they're not. And so he leads them into the desert. Let me ask, let me ask you, have you ever been frustrated with God's leading? You, you know that this is all the signs say this is the way. This is the best way. This is the most comfortable way. This is the most efficient way. We know God's all about efficiency, right? This is the most family-friendly way. This is the way that's going to be best for my family. But he's leading me over here, away from my dreams, away from joy, away from, from, from what I think is right. You ever been frustrated with God? But God is with us to direct us. He's not an ogre and he's not seeking to be vengeful and mean. He just knows things we don't know. If we go this way, it will destroy us. I remember I graduated from Moody. Moody was only a three-year college when I was there. After you got done, you had to go a year somewhere else to finish up, get your degree. And I finished Moody, and I could tell you some great stories. I saw God provide in some miraculous ways financially to help me get through. Well, when I graduated, I was broke. I was just flat broke. But I was convinced that God, because he'd done it before, he was going to provide for me to keep going. But he didn't. Come the fall, I was, I was broke. And so I'm waving to my friends, watching them all get in their cars and head off to their different colleges. And I was thinking of all the fun they were going to be having, still doing dorm life, still doing classes, still having late night parties and goofing around. But not me. 
I was alone and I had this job I had to work because I needed a job behind this stupid saddle stitch machine in a bindery shop. Um, and I had no friends. I thought, this is awful, man. This is awful. God, what happened? You're supposed to lead me this way. You let me, what are you, what are you doing? And I started thinking, though, I'm, all right, I'm wasting my time here, but I might as well do something of some value. And so my church, I thought I would work in the youth group at the church. Actually, we didn't have a youth group. I was going to have to start it. My church had like 70 people, and that included the nursery, and that was a good Sunday, right? That was like Mother's Day. So that was a, that was, I had a small church. And so I thought, you know what? I grew up there, and we had a pretty decent youth group when I was a kid, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start one. And so I, 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 my first night, I had six kids. Four of them were leaving for college in two weeks, right? So I'm going, oh, man, what is this about? Well, I was there for one year. And when I left, we had 35 to 50 kids strong. We had a handful of leaders. And I, I have to, to tell you, I saw God work in ways in that year there that I have never seen before or since. There were kids radically saved. I watched some of, of, of our kids sharing their faith and, and getting bold and, and serving in ways I would have never expected. Some of those kids that were in that youth group then are in ministry today. Now, this is a crazy thing. I would have never chosen that. God, what are you doing with me here? And yet, after so many years in ministry, I look back at that year as one of the most productive, one of the most awe-inspiring, significant, God-defining years in my ministry. God is with us to direct us. We, we, we trust that he knows things we don't know. He's there to direct us. But he's also there with his presence to protect us. In verse 21 of Exodus 13, it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. So, so God is leading them. And he's got this cloud um, manifestation that he's leading them with. Over in verse 19, same chapter. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. Now let me give you the, the background why he did this. Because the very next morning, Pharaoh wakes up after he let the people go. And he's thinking, what did I do? I just sent my economy out the front door. Who's going to build my pyramids for crying out loud? And so, so Pharaoh gets his army together. One of the most formidable war machines in this area anyway, in the, in the world at this time. And he goes after Israel. Well, God had been leading Israel right down into the, the desert. He leads them smack dab right up against the Red Sea. It's a dead end. Oh, well, it's a dead end. But the guys in the back of the line, they look and they see this cloud of dust. And the cloud of dust is growing and growing. And then they realize that it's Pharaoh's army coming after them. And, and they're, they're, they're toast. How can they take on Pharaoh's army? But look what God does, right? The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. There's an incredible, incredible principle here. Please don't miss this principle. Where God directs 
God protects. Now, now don't misunderstand me, but I need you to soak on that. Where God directs, God protects. One day we will all die. Some of us may die martyrs' deaths, certainly. But you need to know that if God has not sanctioned that, until the Lord ordains your death, you are bulletproof. You just need to know that you are bulletproof until God has sanctioned your, your death. He's there to direct us. He's there to protect us. That's what he does. He leads us in this way, and yet we pretend like he's not with us or he wants to hang us and hurt us because he's not always leading us on the most clear direct route that we think is there. Well, I want you to fast forward for, for a moment. One year, okay, God led him into the desert. They hung out at, in, at Sinai. You know, there's some things you can only learn in the desert, right? God had hardly really been introduced properly to his people yet at this point. And so he stops off in Sinai. He's there, there for one year. He teaches them about him, about how he gives them dimensions for the, for the tabernacle, which is really how he can be with his people, how there can be a sacrificial system to take that thing that keeps them from being with him away. He tells them how they can relate with each other. and he, he, he helps them build themselves into community. He uses that desert time to help them build their relationships with him, with, with each other. It's incredibly, you can learn things in the desert you cannot learn anywhere else. But after a year there, he says, it's okay. It's time to head to the promised land. And so they, they go up towards the promised land. And you go to Numbers 13, and when they got to the promised land, Moses sends spies, you know the story, right? 12 spies, reconnaissance mission into the promised land just to check it out. The spies come back, and you got to know the day the spies get back, everybody's talking. The spies are back. Let's go check it out. I hear they brought some of the fruit from the land. Let's go. We've been wandering around in a desert for a year, for crying out loud. This, this promised land sounds fantastic. And so they meet with them. And the reconnaissance mission, the spies, they told him, we came into the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, which means it's pretty good. And this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites dwell in the hill country. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Basically saying, there's no room left for us. Everybody's got everything occupied already. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is the land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim. Now, when he said the Nephilim, the people would all go, <gasps> because the Nephilim were the giants. Goliath had Nephilim blood in him. These were the scary folk. And we seemed our, to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. I love that last line. 
so we seem to them. You wonder, did they take a poll of these guys? Hey, Nephilim, what, what type of insect do we look like to you? Maybe like a beetle, or a grasshopper. God, what, what are they thinking? They were doing what we do. They just project. We're going to get clobbered. The situation is bigger than we can handle. The circumstances are beyond us. We're going to get smoked. This is what they're thinking. And as they're telling the people, the story, I think, is picking up a little bit of steam. And there are monsters there, you guys. And they're big. And they got fangs. And they're spitting fire. And they're drooling. And they're making all these crazy noises. And they got nine arms. And they fly. And they run like the wind. And they like to eat children for lunch. You know, and the people are like, oh, we can't go there. And, and notice that all of Israel is up in arms from the bad report of, of ten folk. Ten people. Now, verse, chapter 14, one, verse 1, says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, right? Oh, we can't go in there. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? No, stop. <laughs> Would that we had died in this wilderness. God's going to give them what they're asking for. They say, it's been better if we'd have just died in the wilderness. God says, okay. They could have had an opportunity to see God move, but instead, instead, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So that's their plan. But Caleb figures, I got to give it one more shot. And so he enlists Joshua, who was another spy who was seeing eye to eye with himself. And they speak into these guys. And they said, the land, this is verse, what do we got? The, verse 17, is it? The land which we pass through to, verse 8, excuse me. The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. You guys want to keep hanging out in the desert? This is a great land. And if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now, now, before they put, don't put the next verse up yet, because before they put, you see the next verse, I'm going to give you my paraphrase of what the verse says. And then they said, oh, Joshua and Caleb, thank you for enlightening us with this truth that we forgot. When we realized not God's presence was with us, we were blockheads. We repent and go. Well, that's what they should have said, Right? But what did they really say? 14.10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. The people said, forget it. We're not going. And they didn't. 
And you know, this is the crazy thing. They could have, again, saw God's hand. They could have saw the miracles. They could have watched the promises of God fulfilled. Their kids could have watched the faith of mom and dad move into it. But instead, they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. Now, note of this. God was with them in the desert. God was providing for them in the desert. But their lives, for the rest of their lives, were just walking around in circles in the sand. You ever walk, try to leave footprints in the sand? The, the wind covers them up immediately. Their, 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 their significance of their lives was nil. They could have been incredibly uh, used by the Lord and instead they chose the desert for themselves and their kids. We never sin in a, in a vacuum. Most Christians... Again, I, I think believe God is with us, but they don't live like it. And here's my, my guess. This is why I think why. I look at my own heart. If God would have come to the Israelites here with this massive supernatural manifestation, you know, wind blowing and fire and, and things flying around and a booming voice, you know, go with, uh, with Joshua and Caleb into the land, then maybe they would have moved, Right? But God was silent here. Now, the crazy thing is, one year earlier, these guys watched the plagues. One year earlier, these guys watched the Red Sea part. I've never seen anything like that. One year earlier, they watched God wipe out the entire Egyptian army. They had seen. They should have known better. And this is kind of like a test. But they decide, no. no. We can mistake God's silence for his absence and we can't we just we just can't go down that road we can't go down that road you know at some point i believe every christian every christian will come to that crossroads of incredible magnitude where where the 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 Applause is gone. The feelings of peace and joy, they're gone. The, the, the uh, great counsel, the, the, the um, wonderful accolades, the, the, the financial, uh, uh, fiscal worth of doing. So when all those things are gone, and you are by yourself, and the only thing you've got, God has blown away all that stuff that, that will be shaken. He's, he's taken it out, and the only thing that's left is faith. And you are, are going to stop and choose to hear the voice of God say, I'm with you, and I need you to know, I will love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my child, you will be. You get to that place where you say, along with Job, yet... I will praise him. Or with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Yep, God could do beyond. But even if he doesn't, I'm following my God, regardless of where he leads. With Mary, Jesus' mom, who says, who says may it be done unto me, as you have said. Like uh, any of the, the, the saints over the, the thousands of years of church history. When, when faced with temptation and trials and persecution, they have said, I believe that my God is with me, not to observe, but, but to preserve, to direct and protect. And I'm going to follow him. Here I stand. I can do no other. 
But so many may come to that crossroad and choose to go a different, different direction. You know, if, uh, if you think this through, I can't help but wonder if the key question facing me, facing us today is the exact same question that faced these ancient Israelites. Will you trust me as, 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 as I lead? And we choose not. You know, the, the, this is a crazy thing for me. You, you take the presence of God out of Christianity and you have removed the best part of Christianity. You take the presence of God out and what have you got? You got, you got like a rule book. You got some, maybe some rituals. You've got some religious things you, you do. And the crazy thing is there's a lot of Christians who are okay with that. But can you, can you imagine what God would do through you if you could consistently, continuously live in, in a consciousness of the presence of, of a God who's with you to, to protect and to direct. Can you imagine what God would do through Appleton Alliance Church more so if, if we lived co corporately in, in a consciousness of the presence of Almighty, of Almighty God? And so if there's, if there's one thing that I think would, he would say to us today if he was here, putting all these texts together, all these ideas, to, ideas together, here's paraphrase again. I think he would say, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my presence with my children shall be. Would you pray with me? And we cannot pray Lord first without asking your forgiveness you've been on a campaign to remind us to remind us of your presence with us your desire to be with us and we've turned you into some sort of an ogre or someone who's far away or someone who doesn't care or someone who doesn't know God for myself for my brothers and sisters thank you for, for directing us Oh, Lord, I pray as you do every single day, we would recognize that it's a day to follow you and we're going to, that we trust you. And Lord, for any who may not know you, I pray even right now as they would be hearing this, that your presence is still with them. You know them, you know their sin, you know their confusion, their pain, and you want to come in, you want to wash their souls clean, you want to claim them as one of your children. Would your spirit work in their heart in that regard too? And God, as we go forth into this week, would you remind us of your, your presence that it may impact how we live our lives to the glory of Jesus for us in his name that we pray. Amen.